the theme for the afternoon teachings is aloneness and togetherness. First is a bit step to the past and then a quick leap of two and a half thousand years uh, to the present. It's rather, I feel, important and valuable to recognize and acknowledge the radical vision of the Buddha. Even today, we see that in uh, India, with its extraordinary influences from the past, there is much which is genuinely, authoritatively religious. Flowers, the candles, the incense, uh, the deities, uh, the, the, the gods, the, the ashrams, the forms of uh, worship. All of this still very strongly permeates India. It's in the air. And the time of the Buddha, from that which was written, and there was much written, it seems that, that the kind of atmosphere was just as much impregnated at that time. There was the god, or the gods, there was the guru, the original meaning is giver of light, and the guru acted as the bridge between the ordinary realm of human beings and the transcendental realm. So not surprisingly, tremendous devotion, love, and worship went to the guru who was regarded as the embodiment of the divine. And this formed a relationship. Then there were the ascetics, the dedicated, hardcore yogis. Not only of the asanas, the postures, but the yogi of ascetic life, the yogi of dedicated, resolute meditation. And the Buddha endeavoured to make a substantial shift away from all of this. He placed enormous importance on lifestyle, unquestionably, and took the emphasis of that which is divine as if it was outside of ourselves, as if we worship and give attention to and made a very important, and it was a radical shift, and one of the shifts is that the divine is to be found within you. And it's to be found essentially in your heart, in my heart. And there was therefore no need to have a metaphysic called the divine. Metaphysic, beyond the physical, outside of the physical. And therefore, a human being, when he or she shows, when you and I show real, authentic love, this is divine, he said. When you and I, as women and men on the earth, show genuine compassion, not pity, but the action in life which relieves or resolves suffering of body, heart, mind, animals, human beings, environment, 
This is divine. When a human being shows great joy, appreciation, deep gratitude for life, for being, for love, for support of others, this is divine. And the human being is able to stay truly steady in the midst of difficult circumstances, equanimity, truly steady in the face of extraordinarily difficult things, in the faces of attraction and aversion, <coughs> gain and loss, pleasure and pain, health and sickness, success and failure. When a human beings are able to stay truly steady, this is something truly divine. It was a shift away from. With the lifestyle, he had no regard for the realm of flowers and incense and uh, uh, dress and manner and being of the guru life. We still see that today. And he said and stated that the way of life of the Sangha, teachers and students, to use those constructions for a uh, moment, we shouldn't be able to distinguish Originally there were no robes. This was a later. There was a homeless way of life. And this itself was radical because, despite some initial resistance, women were invited into the homeless life as much as men. Originally, even more uh, radical, some of us not quite so bold, the women and the men in the homeless life in the Buddha Sangha bathe naked, publicly. Much more free-spirited way of life. We can't even do that today. So it was a movement away from external divinity, guru worship, caste, sacrifice, belief in rituals, immersion in the Ganga, and a movement towards human beings realizing something profound which had and carried none of those constructions. And that made it a departure from the norm. Departure from the norm. And I mention this because today perhaps from your experience, certainly from mine. The exploration of the Dharma needs a fresh, not totally, but a fresh kind of emphasis. And this is what I want to talk about. Classically, looking at past and present for a moment, what has happened is that some people aspired towards ordination, became monks and nuns, entered into the celibate life, stepped out of the ordinary world called householder, livelihood, relationship, becoming parents or whatever, and stepped into the life of monasticism. Some people regard monasticism as an escape from the world. Being a post-monastic 
I wish it was an escape. It would be lovely. Unfortunately, in the monastery, there is no escape. Sometimes we used to say in the monastery, perhaps the escape is in the householder's life. Television. Working like mad. Addiction to the refrigerator. Constantly doing. Making ourselves compellingly and compulsively busy. Maybe that's the escape. And if one is living with somebody in the householder's life, at least there's some resemblance of choice about it. But in the monastery, frankly, one wouldn't choose to live with any of them. And new ones keep coming in. And you have to deal with them. All sorts of weird and wonderful people end up shaving their heads. For reasons we didn't know, and they didn't know. So in our monastery we had the sublimely crazy, the mystics, the alcohol and heroin addicts, the terrorists, the man fed up with a householder's life, the woman who didn't want to go on living in the village any longer, we had the children who just wanted to be monks and nuns, we had them all in there, 200 of us. And in that weird and wonderful uh, climate, there we all had to relate to each other and live in our aloneness at the same time. No picnic. <coughs> so this became the form established, householders and monastics. For us, for you and for I, Seems to me that the challenge today and the great exploration today is looking at very deeply and very honestly with our being, as always carried of course, to see what is our relationship to aloneness and what is our relationship to togetherness. It means the close, uh, intimate relationship. And these two areas pretty well for most ages is a constant thread of interest and sometimes preoccupation. Being alone and what that means or being in a relationship with another human being opposite gender, same gender but being in a relationship with another human being and these two areas and fields of life carry with it great significance for us. And this significance the Dharma has to address. And it's going to require from you, from me, from all of us, a genuine honesty to look at this area. So in other words, the radical changes of the Buddha from two and a half thousand years ago, I certainly love them and applaud them. The system of monasticism and householder still applies and it's important that people look care into that. And for many, as I say, the dynamic of today is looking what is it to be alone 
What is it to be in a relationship? And I'll just take one and the other. Most of the time, not always, most of the time we know if we're in a relationship. Well, most of the time we know if we're not in a relationship. But sometimes one doesn't know. And this particularly applies to some people who come to India. <laughs> because you may have a relationship with somebody who's in another part of the world or in another part of the country. And you may not be sure if this relationship is on or off or half on or half off. Whether you're, a, as I often say, one doesn't know sometimes whether one is um, a bus stop or the terminus. You see what I mean. So sometimes, just taking the norm for the moment, there's the experience of aloneness. One looks and says, in my life, at this present time, whoever I am, one, can, one might say, I am not in a relationship. Period. The simple word of using relationship with one other human being there. Very easily, this is too easily the breeding ground for some people for dissatisfaction. One can think and you can feel and have the idea if only I was in a relationship, if only that could happen, it would be so beautiful, it would be a challenge to my life, I'd feel more fulfilled, I really feel ready or half ready or 1% ready and this would be an important next step in my life. This gap is problematic. It's a severely problematic gap. And it's problematic because the idea of what I want and the fact of who I am right now, there is a split. The fact, the truth is, in the moment, I am alone. In the moment, whoever the eye is, I am not in a relationship. And the wanting and the idea and the picture and the image and the wish and the fantasy or the story or the feeling or whatever separates us from the fact. And in this separation from the fact, it can become a pressure, a stress, an unrest, a dissatisfaction, because one is constantly trying to bridge the gap. And one is losing fact and is unable to recognize the immense significance of aloneness. We often, we'll say, we'll say here that the Buddha said, that which is divine is love. He says, love he speaks of it in the same way as truth, love, matter. It's immeasurable. If love is to be authentic, deeply authentic, it is going to require us to stay true to the fact. The staying true to the fact is to love aloneness. To love it deeply, deeply. To love this being alone. It doesn't mean to say that in the love of aloneness and the great appreciation for it 
one is excluding relationship. Understand? If one clings to it, then we will start to close the doors on the openness on what might be possible. But if there is an authentic love of a, of relationship, of sorry, of aloneness, and that really is sensed well and deeply, there's something that generates a contentment with it and appreciation of it. We can rest in this love of this aloneness. If it isn't the case, and there is the gap, the separation, it's not only something's not comfortable with the being, but if it's strong, it's terribly easy for us in looking at others to actually look at the other person not see him or her for who he or she is but to look at them in terms of or some of them would he or she make a partner for me? Whoa! And sometimes that can bring about pressure neediness we can't see the human being just for the human being. We see in relationship to what the self wants. And the feature of our practice is the love of aloneness. To really love it. And to love it so well and deeply that times of stillness and times of silence and times of oneself and just the nature, oneself and no language, renew something deep inside, because you have a love for the aloneness, to feel the aloneness through. Some people have this without any effort. Then you can close the door. Oh, great, oh, thanks, lovely. And it isn't easy to stay steady with this. You're a woman, you're in your 30s, you've got feelings and emotions, you love your aloneness, you have biology, intimations start arising, intimations of, do I want to be a mother? Intimations of, do I wish to start a relationship to become a mother? Those thoughts, those feelings, those biological intimations start to get a bit stronger. Then you begin to feel uncertain in your being. You begin to feel uncertain in your love of your aloneness, in the love of your non-relationship. And then you're hearing the stories from others, men and women, you're seeing mothers around with young kids, all registering impressions upon one. And then the numbers begin to come in. And all of that adds a little bit more fuel to it. It isn't easy. You're a man. You wonder whether, what it would be like to be a father. Not a father. 
wonder where the passage of the years are going by, of course, easier for the male species than for the women in terms of numbers, ages. But still the thought can arise, the feelings can arise and all of that can build into a kind of pressure and the pressure can build and one just starts to feel unhappy in one's being, about one's being. It isn't easy to live with love. It isn't easy to be vulnerable. It isn't easy to live unsure about how things will unfold in the future, in one's aloneness. And that's why, when the Buddha says, Sangang Saranang Gachami, I take refuge in the Sangha, one of the important features of that is, because you and I, we need each other. We need the love of each other and the friendship of each other. Therefore, there, is an, there can be an aloneness, but in a community of love. And if there's a community of love and a community of sharing, and it runs deep, the issue is no longer about being a parent or not being a parent. About becoming a mother or becoming a father. It is not the issue. The issue is love and staying true to it. And it's a great challenge. And sometimes we look at others and we say, oh, they're so lucky. You used to come to Christopher, I have to, have to say. So when I was a monk, people would, sometimes I would meet Westerners, Thailand and uh, 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 India. And, then, and people would say, oh, Christopher, you're so lucky. You're a monk. You don't have to deal with money and all these worldly issues and career and uh, things. You can just do your practice. You're so lucky. Okay. Then I disrobed. And then, after I disrobed, then people would say, Oh, Christopher, you're so lucky. You don't have a relationship. You don't know, you don't know what it's like being in a relationship. And you, so there, you're, therefore you're, you just have your aloneness. And then I got into a relationship. Oh, Christopher, you're so lucky. You have a relationship, but you haven't got any kids. If you had kids, you really see what it's like having to do with kids. So uh, then, without any planning, my dear partner got uh, pregnant. I remember the moment extremely well when she told me, because we were in the forest in Radhaji here, she remembers well, in um, 1981 at Damanandra in this forest. So on the retreats, Gwanwin, we had an agreement. I'd be the guru and she'd be the student. I mean, in other words, that when we came for a one-to-one, we'd just speak about what the practice is. I do my thing. So she sat down in the interview very quiet, said nothing. And I, well, usual male thing, oh God, what have I done wrong? And, um, and then she said, I think I'm pregnant. And I went, excuse the vernacular, Christ. <laughs> and apparently got up out of my cross-legged position and spontaneously went into walking meditation. <laughs> 
And then we had to wait 24 hours. It was one of the longest 24 hours I had to wait. Had to wait. And I got taken off to this clinic. Well, she did. She did. I went along for the ride. And um, so I'm sitting there. I always remember in this little clinic near Lismore somewhere. And to, see, to have the pregnancy test. And it always took us about 8 o'clock in the evening. And Mick was singing. Mick Jagger, you know. Now it's Sir Mick. This is extraordinary. And, and Mick Jagger was singing Jumping Jack Flash. I don't know if you remember that. Which was exactly what I was feeling. <laughs> and then she came out. That, that is Vineman. And then nine months later my daughter came out. So, well, eight months or whatever. So then Fred said to me, oh Christopher, you're so lucky. You've got a relationship with a child. You have no idea what it's like to be a single parent. Right? <laughs> and then Gwenwyn said, well, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. And, uh, so then I'm a single parent. You know, always so lucky. <laughs> you know, you're a single parent, but you've only got one child. I mean, what do I have to do? <laughs> so we easily look outside and we compare. We look outside and we compare. And when we start comparing in that way, we begin to lose our love of our aloneness. We begin to imagine and think that others are better off in some way or other. We begin to think, oh, they're so lucky because they have whatever. The issue today is not around sexuality and celibacy. It's, a, it's, a, it's around love. It's about aloneness and loving it. It's about relationship and loving it. It's about exploring either of those or both of those. And it's, a, and it's an important sh shift because most of us will possibly agree that often one or the other is causing difficulty. Being in a relationship can cause difficulty. Not being in a relationship can cause difficulty. The ending of a relationship can cause difficulty. So we've got to find ways for the Dharma to really address this these areas of life, because it's a, a, a predominant paradigm of our life, as we know. We have to address this. With no favoritism of relationship or aloneness. No nostalgia for either. Ruthless with this. So that love either way is empowered and not watered down because one seems better than the other. In the area of relationship, the number of us in the hall here are in relationship. In this area, the dynamic of this area, and of course it will flow or manifest in other areas of relationship as well. Part of the work on ourselves is not only looking at, and this is where the issue arises, I feel, we can look at the dynamic, and it is important, 
of anybody who is important to you or important to me, taking that kind of relationship, or the intimate relationship, man and the woman or same gender, that in the looking at that, if one is just concerned about the story and about the dynamics of the personality between the two, my response is, good luck, because you will need it. Oh, my goodness. If in the relationship it is just about how we can get along well, how our personality fits and doesn't fit with each other, <coughs> or what it is that you have to offer me and what it is I have to offer you, if it's just about that, I think it's going to be very severely problematic. I doubt very, very much that in a close, intimate relationship between two people, whether the constructions called my personality, called your personality, my way of doing things, your way of doing things, my way of saying things, your way of saying if a relationship, given the climate that we live in, the culture climate, can hold together on two people fitting easily with each other through the means of personality. The glue, and it was very glue, very sticky, over the centuries has been social pressure and religious orthodoxy kept people together. Not necessarily love. They just kept people together. Some of us only know too well. We've got enough memory of childhood. When my dear mother said to me, bless her, what do you remember of your childhood? What do you remember of your upbringing? And the first words that came out of my mouth were, one long argument between you and dad. That was my memory of my childhood. One, and she said, oh, it wasn't that bad. I said, well, you asked me. I give you an honest answer. And that's my memory. Arguing, arguing, slamming a door, arguing, arguing, arguing. Uh, nothing. Or something. She said, oh, it wasn't like that. No, no, no. Uh, not, 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 it wasn't like that. All right. Remember it differently. So then she rang up my sister. She said, Judy, my sister's name, Judy. What do you remember of your upbringing, your childhood? My sister said, one long argument. <laughs> so sometimes we look and we say to ourselves, I don't want to live in a marriage for 50 years and it's one long argument. <laughs> I mean, it's a slight exaggeration, but you get the point. I mean, they did sleep. So, <laughs> so sometimes we look and there's been enough opening up, which I think is healthy but not easy, in which the social religious pressures to stay together forever through hell and hell and hell have changed sufficiently but it means, and part of the challenge for us is, that it means for us 
can we, that means people who are in relationship and in communication in relationship, honestly expect ourselves or the other person to actually provide everything for us. Can we? Can I? Can you? In the limitation of just being human, in the limitation of our understanding, in the limitation of our insights, of our wisdom, in the limitation of areas that we don't know, in the limitation of our habit, in the limitation because there are things which we still have to unlearn inside of ourselves, to move on from. And it would be a high expectation in relationship to really expect another human being to provide everything. And when we're not truly clear about that, we end up disappointed with the person, with ourselves and with the relationship. We can have too high expectation. And so therefore I say something which is deep and uh, vital, some essential, must be at the centre, constantly. And it's our reference point. We call it love. The nature of the love must be so powerful for us, so much, so essential for us, that it will carry the differences. Understand? I'm a human being, and all that expresses itself. The person, the person that I connect with, or communicate with, the human being, and all that expresses through the human being. But if I stay true to love, and that's the fullness of commitment, then the love is like a wonderful umbrella in which two people, or a group of people, can be together with the differences. Because it's love is the priority. And when that principle and that experience really matters for us, really, really matters for us, I find, and hopefully you do too, that it's easier to accommodate misunderstanding. It's easier to accommodate differences. And the very accommodation of our differences, of who we are and what we are, their ability to accommodate is the act of love. And therefore, blame, fault-finding, jealousy, possessiveness, reactivity, becomes a rare phenomenon because one is staying true to love no matter what. The love counts. And if that love counts, the issue of being a monk, being a nun, being a householder, being alone, being in a relationship, is all secondary to something profoundly divine and immeasurable. 
And this is why we, 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 we dig deep with each other. Because we wish to stay true to something. And it seems to me that even the language of religion can be dropped. Even the language of being a, a spiritual person can be dropped. We're interested in, in something else. And truth, in Dharma language, is being true to something. To stay true. To be really honest. Today, in the, in the small group we had, we looked and shared a little bit on area of uh, insight. And in our willingness to be honest with ourselves and to really attend to ourselves, this honesty, honesty is uh, another human word for truth. And sometimes something is seen clearly and well for us. And the inner response to seeing something clearly and well, the inner response is, this is true. This is so true. This is what happened. This is how it is. And that truth makes something very clear. So truth and clarity, honesty, really meet together. And it's only the truth, when we say, this is the truth, only that truth will wake us up. No meditation method and technique. No exchange of words. No sitting in front of a guru and worshipping. No God, no religion will wake us up. It is when, it is the moment of the dawning of something which one knows is true, touches one. And in that, that truth has just spoken to us. And as uh, the Buddha said, one knows not, very beautiful, one knows not where this truth comes from. It's not here, if it was, or I said, oh, I'll get it out. It's not there, he says, and it's not in between. One knows not where this truth comes from, which enters into the event of life and contributes to waking us up. And sometimes it's just the simple words, this is so true. Extraordinary. And therefore I say that the, the old duality, monastics and householders, the old duality, celibacy, that means aloneness, as we say, and sexuality, meaning relationship. This one, I feel, I believe, does no, no longer applies to our contemporary generation. It's over, it's finished. It's not the issue. It's the issue of truth. It's the issue of the empowerment of love. And this we explore and work with. We stay true to that. Many of these roles which we imagine or like or think about, whatever in the future or, or in, 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 the, in the present, they are all secondary to the essential.
May all beings live with love. May all beings live with truth. May all beings live an awakened life. A couple of quiet minutes together, shall we please?